Welcome to the Grass Matters podcast brought to you by Great Southern. Now, today our guest is Matthew Schwartz. He's the manager of Australia Beef and Lamb in Japan. Welcome to the podcast, Matt. Um, before we dive into everything about Japan, I'm keen to hear a bit about yourself. Obviously, your love affair with the country as well as, I guess, red meat as a whole sort of started with a couple of Japanese exchange students. Oh, that's, that's true. Um, so I, I grew up in Adelaide and my best buddies around the corner um, the, their mum was a, J- a Japanese language teacher and they would have the exchange students staying at their place and um, yeah, became mates with a couple of guys, uh, Japanese guys and um, started to learn a few words of Japanese from them. All the naughty ones, of course. Oh, no, no, no. You know, we were 17 year old kids, you know, we, we just, there was no playing up at all. <laughs> so then how did you then get into red meat? So um, it, it all linked on from there that after, after I finished my uh, business degree at uni, I wanted to try living overseas. And a lot of people around me were going to London or, or US or Canada, but I still had a, just a little bit of a, link in, a lingering thought about spending some time in Japan and uh, decided to go over to Japan for one year as uh, an English teacher and that turned into four years. After four years of teaching English in Japan, my marketable job skills w- weren't that high back in the, in the Australian market and one of the points of entry to a, to a, to a career path that I looked at was, was my Japanese language, um, which was the link to getting uh, a job in the meat industry. And so now you're with JBS, how long have you been in Japan now in your current role? So I've been with JBS for 10 years overall. The first six years I learnt the business in, the, in our office in Australia and then moved up to, to Tokyo four years ago. So, Matt, Japan obviously been one of our top uh, beef export markets for the best part of 30 years. Take us back to the start. How did it become such a big customer for us? After the, you know, the Second World War and Japan went through a rapid period of industrialization and started to become quite quite wealthy uh, quickly and basically the, these big japanese companies went out all across the world looking to make investments in the, all the best foods whether it was fish uh, vegetables and and also meats in australia and a lot of the australian meatworks at at various times were were owned by by japanese companies um the governments of Japan and Australia have a very long and stable relationship. So there's a lot of trust there with the systems, you know, of hygiene and, and traceability that Australia has that's highly regarded in Japan. Uh, and then some of the business relationships that exist span up, up to 30 or 40 years of continuous weekly trading. So it's a really strong and stable trade from Australia to Japan. And I suppose also particularly with the diet, we saw a massive change in terms of going from fish to eating more bread meat. Yeah, that's right. Um, if you look into the, the numbers, uh, you know, Japan's diet was traditionally fish of up to 40 kilograms uh, per, per capita per year. And gradually over time, the, the diet of fish has decreased for a few reasons. Um, part of it is, is lifestyles that as people move to the big cities, uh, they moved into very, very small apartments, uh, you know, maybe as small as 20 or 25 square metres. Uh, 25 square metres. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Being a big uh, Aussie, Aussie fellow, I think I'd struggle in a, an apartment that small. 
Um, but that type of lifestyle, you know, they're notoriously long working hours in Japan. So people would knock off work and rather than buying a, you know, a small fish and then grilling it and then deboning it and taking the bones out slowly, um, they would just opt for something quick. Like they'd grab a, they'd head to a, a restaurant after work for a quick bite or just grabbing something that's pre, pre-cooked or something that's easy to prepare. And that's where over time, um, as, as the fish consumption's decreased, that, that share has been taken up by, by chicken, pork and beef. And so paint us a bit more of a picture then, I guess, of today's Japanese consumer. You've said that they've got the sort of small caravan type, like apartment, um, eat out a lot, don't really prepare much at home. Well, yeah, if you think about, I mean, to describe the, the wider Tokyo region, you've got a population of 38 million people, um, you know, within 50 or 100 kilometres. Uh, so that, that dictates that the living space is very, very small. And people, they're flying around on trains, walking around town. A lot of their life is lived out in their company, on the street, in restaurants, out and about in cafes. Uh, so, so eating out is a, is a big thing. Um, so it's a, in that way, we see that yeah, the lifestyle is very different from, from Australia. And in terms of meat consumption, obviously it's such a grain-fed, dominated market. Just how much of a hard sell is grass-fed in that market? A lot of the supermarket buyers, to stereotype, might be a male in their 50s and the way they've grown up with recognising meat quality is that Japanese Wagyu is at the top and then next is USA grain-fed or a, or a, a grain-fed Angus out of Australia and that grass-fed sits at the bottom of that ranking. Uh, so w- what we come up against is a challenge. When, when the price point sits close to a standard grain-fed product, that it's quite a good... It's a, it's a, it's a price point that works but when we uh, when we ask a premium above a grain fed that's when we when we we still have a lot of work to do with the the education the process with the industry itself but that doesn't necessarily represent the consumer i mean the guys who are making decisions about what what meat to put in their retail shelves but what we what we hear a lot from consumers and we even see it on online comments and we get it time and time again is that they, they actually really prefer the, the uh, leaner product and that all our taste testing of Great Southern is, is really, really successful. And people are starting to understand the, the nutritional benefits of, of red meat and lean beef. And you might, you know, you might see people, also I think people's body types are, are changing, they're getting bigger and they have, it was traditionally seen as being desirable to be very, very sl- slim in Japan, but now it's, it's becoming a trend. You'll see a lot of people online who are you know, doing a lot of fitness and they're, they're proud of getting um, you know, more muscle strength and they'll often be showing them themselves eating a 400-gram steak. So they're starting to get associated with that a healthy lifestyle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wish, yeah. Um, that's, that's, that's part of it. And also is, as this last generation have come through with a, with a wealthier parents and they've gone and studied overseas in Europe or Australia, or the states, and they've brought that their their food culture back with them. So they've come back, and they, they want to eat Japanese food a lot of the time, but they also want to eat, uh, you know, Western or European 
experience uh, quite often as well. So Matt, how is the Great Southern product perceived in Japan? Japan, and, and I, I think a lot of Asia is very different to the States or Australia where the product claims of hormone-free and antibiotic-free, they, they're still taking time to, to resonate with, with the consumers here. A lot of people have, uh, are just starting to enjoy meat and just beef itself and not, not at the stage of determining the difference or having knowledge of grain-fed beef or grass-fed beef. There's a very, very niche market which is asking those questions. Or is it grass-fed or does it, has it been given antibiotics, etc.? And we're seeing that, that, that being with the expat community or um, Japanese in Tokyo who might be quite well off or lived overseas. Um, and some online, uh, ret- uh, online sales channels sort of catering to, to those type of consumers. But as a, as a general rule, those claims, may, the customer might not even understand what they mean. Or they might, there's a high level of trust in Japanese food systems. So an assumption that if the product's in the supermarket, it's safe and it's completely fine. So, so that's going to take some time. Um, so it's more, it's more around the balance of educating the claims. And once people know those things, they, they're happy to hear them and everyone wants to feed their family or their kids, you know, really healthy and natural food. But the way it's being received mostly is for the quality of the meat. Um, people in the trade, they, they know that the type of breeds that go into the Great Southern Program due to the, the, the location in Southern Australia, you're going to get those great uh, Angus, Hereford, uh, British type uh, meat breeds there. So the, the firmness of the meat and the, the appearance of the meat is, is very good. And what we do, with, which is a little bit different, is the, the, the grading and, for example, grading the pinnacle product as marbling score too. That was sort of previously unheard of. That The assumption was that grass-fed beef was very, very lean. However, well, here's a product that's grass-fed, but it is marbling too, so it it, it can find itself um, in 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 the same category as a as a grain-fed product out of Australia or from the US in terms of how it how it uh, presents for those customers that are looking for marbling. As a salesperson, I guess trying to get your product in there, how do you get through? Yeah, it's a big challenge, and and, and you you're in a competitive market where it, you know a super uh, someone in Japan they're getting access to meat from the states, Australia. South America, Europe, and then a number of different brands from each of those markets. So it, it's a challenge to stand out amongst that and to get their attention. And uh, what we find is that doing uh, seminars directly with the, the retailers and, and tastings is the, the most uh, efficient way of getting a result there because Japan has an incredible, anyone who's been to the Japanese supermarkets would notice how amazing the presentation is. And they're located with the urban lifestyle. You get off the train station and there's a supermarket right there. So we don't, you know, online sales and delivery is making some traction, but we really don't see it moving as fast in other, as, as in other countries just because the, the supermarket experience is so, is so pleasant and, and, uh, high quality in Japan. So you really need to be present in that sales location. You need to be in the supermarket. So, and we're confident that 
the look and feel of the, the great Southern branding and the meat quality is, there's absolutely no doubts about once, once people see and feel and have an experience with the product that they're not disappointed. It's, it's really convincing the, the retailers one by one to, to give it a shot. And the challenge also is finding the right scale of retailer because, you know, if you go, if you approach a huge retailer such as Eon or Itayoko though, which would be the equivalent of something like Coles or Woolworths in Australia, they're looking for risk diversity on their supply. So that they're, right now they're in a situation where if they say I use Australian grain fed, they've got say seven or eight different brands or supply sources. So they know if one, if there's an issue with one supplier, they move to the next supplier. So, so what we want to do is target say a medium size or smaller size supermarket and, and, that, and have enough that where we can be really confident of giving them the supply that they need week in, week out. So that's the challenge is just matching up the supply with the right size of supermarket and confident we're heading towards that direction where we can get more branded product uh, visible to consumers in the market. So whereabouts would you find great Southern products in Japan at the moment? Uh, so right now um, food service is where we we've um, where you'll find it more easily than retail. So um, yeah, a lot of hotels and small restaurants around Tokyo and Osaka. Um, let me think, probably there's a, there's a quite a prominent restaurant called Ironbark in Ginza, uh, in, in a Ginza 6 building. Uh, if everyone, anyone's ever traveling in, in Tokyo, uh, where you can try a great Southern Pinnacle strip loin on the menu. Um, and the product goes to a range of, Japan being a, is famous for having a number of distribution layers. So the product, is, it's going out there through Japan. Um, it's quite interesting that some of the items that they buy are, are items we probably wouldn't think they're that tasty in Australia, such as the offal items. So all of the great southern tongues, tongues come up to Japan and they are, they're peeled and then thin sliced and then served in a Japanese-style uh, barbecue restaurant chains. They're really important for, you know, for to return on on the on the carcass on the animal in terms of a business uh, sense so in that sense japan's taking quite a lot of the the great southern items yeah and what about in terms of lamb where would you find uh great southern lamb over there yeah lamb's um really growing now uh especially so traditionally lamb was sort of a soul food of hokkaido which is the northern island of japan and um, while that business has maintained what we're seeing a uh, pretty good take up in the last probably three to four years around supermarkets in the Tokyo region, uh, which is a very different market. Tokyo region is like the economic powerhouse of Japan. So people have a little bit more money. They might've traveled overseas, studied abroad, etc. Some people love lamb. Some people hate it. It's, it's really divisive up here and it's known. Yeah. Some people don't like the smell, but one, they either love it. The smell. Um, yeah. 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 Some people turned off and, and interestingly, what, what we find a lot is it's people who are a little bit older that potentially when they grew up and they first tried what they consider lamb, it was more of a mutton product, like an older, at that, at that period in time. And then they, they may have had a, a poor experience where they thought the smell was quite strong and that stuck mm. with them. So even if they get a little whiff of that these days, they're, they're out. But, but we see another group of people who love it. And then you got, you some around Tokyo, you'll see lamb chop bars, and all they do is lamb chops. Just just a lamb, uh, uh, you can have a wine and a lamb chop. Um, 
and also yeah the supermarkets they, it used to be unheard of but these days basically any supermarket around Tokyo you'll see one or two lamb products which is which is great to see um so you yeah our great, great southern lamb uh gets distributed through those channels and what about other regions is it still not very eaten elsewhere yeah it's interesting um so for example the osaka region which is the next major urban center um, anecdotally the the take up is much less and i can't explain why um but hopefully we get there in time now obviously food service is such a big part of the way uh I guess our products are eaten over there. How is that starting to bounce back since COVID? Yeah, sure. So um, there's a food service is a very wide um, category. So you've got at the bottom, the very bottom end, you've got QSR burger, and you move up to family restaurant uh, yakiniku, which is the Japanese barbecue, then steakhouse, high end hotel, high end fine dining. So it's a it's a broad category. So what uh, what we're seeing is that the the, the steakhouse and family restaurant uh, type area uh, is trading approximately seventy percent year on year um, compared to last year. So it's not it's not a bad recovery. I mean, it's a big market to start with, and if you're running at seventy seventy percent, um, products starting to move. Uh, but hotel uh, is still still very much struggling. Um, as the as it was reliant on um, inbound tourism and also with the the Olympics that was planned to happen this year. Mm, and we obviously saw uh, the biggest hit to GDP in about forty years in Japan. What's the vibe over there? A lot of people hanging on to their money, sort of not too much household spending, not too much business spending. Yeah, we've had kind of these chats with our Japanese customers quite a lot recently, and we've sort of worked out that Australians might be a little bit more more relaxed about spending their money, whereas the Japanese are very risk averse in this type of environment. And Japan's well known for having like very high levels of household savings. So yeah, we are, we are definitely seeing, um, initially we saw people really tighten up the purse strings, but as they spend more time at home, they realize, well, I'm not, I'm not spending money on a, an overseas holiday this year, or, or I'm not going out for you know, really expensive dinners with friends. So they're finding themselves with a little bit more money um, and we're seeing them spend on more expensive cuts at the supermarket. So right now you can find um, beef tenderloin all, all around the supermarkets in, in Tokyo, which is something that would normally be too expensive for people to cook at home. So you get those little 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 um, quirks where you think, oh, it's sort of counterintuitive where you think that those cuts would be struggling, but then they really start to move through different channels. So We'll watch this space. Just got to learn to cook it in 20 square metres and <laughs> enjoy yeah, it. Yeah, that's right. Don't smoke up the, the 20 square metre apartment too, too much. Well, I was just thinking <laughs> I have enough trouble with a smoke alarm with a big house. But anyway, <laughs> where are things looking post this COVID drama? I think Japan will continue to be a stable market for us. Um, that the population medium to long term is, is going to decline. But in the next, in the next few years, uh, hopefully we get the tourism going again, uh, where it was up to record levels. But nothing's changing in, in terms of the, the food trends. They're still eating more and more meat. And with all these trade agreements and sort of trade relationships around the world, some of them looking a little bit shaky. Um, it, the, Japan and Australia is just 
you know, it's stable. So it's all about timing and uh, of which products are going to make it up here. But essentially the trade as a whole is looking uh, rock solid. And in terms of trade agreements, you know, someone and other markets issues create an opportunity here in Japan. So if, so if things with China um, look a bit shaky, then we can when we can move more market more product into Japan and vice versa. So it's just a, a matter of the timing, um, and we'll, we'll play it as we go. Just on that one to watch, obviously, is the U.S. Uh, trade agreement with Japan came into effect in January and they've had reduced tariffs as a result of that. It, that's surely going to be placing a lot of pressure in terms of competition for our own meat going in there. Yeah, correct. So Australia and US would make up over 90% of Japan's uh, imported beef. So US is on paper is our, is our sort of rival in the market. But the more and more time I spend up here and learn about the US supply, the more so the more I realise that their offerings is very different. So the US can, with their huge production and number of head, they can offer big volume of individual cuts at a price on a day, whereas Australia can offer product week, every week, year round, and a, and a range of different products. So we would sell up, sell up to 20 or 30 different product types up here, whereas the US is focused very strongly on short plate, chuck rolls, tongues uh, so it's a very different style of business and if you look at the way that they price meat in in the u.s they're highly seasonal um, and very focused on their own domestic market so they're they're only exporting about 20 percent of their product whereas australia exports 70 or 80 percent so we're extremely export focused and, and and very close to japan geographically close to asia geographically so we can do a lot of things that they can't do at times they can uh, cause you a bit of trouble, but I think Australia's position is just just so strong and well regarded in Japan that we have a have a bright future to look forward to up here. Good o. Now, Matt, before I let you go, if you had a last supper, what would you eat? Mmm, I might go for something very rich, uh, not, uh, and I would like to say a great southern tenderloin, but I wouldn't. But if it was just one last time, uh, I wouldn't mind a, a wagyu A five. Uh, tenderloin teppanyaki style and maybe it's served with a some sea urchin on top just to make it a bit richer thanks matt all right thanks all working with you see you later thanks for listening to the podcast remember it drops every thursday two o'clock so make sure you download it on whatever device you're listening to and of course if you can please leave us a review it really does help and you can follow us on our socials at the great southern family